0: Hi everyone, David here. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy. If you like what you hear, I want access to more of our fascinating in-depth content on the energy transition, you need to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for just 29 euros, which will get you full access to our website and app. We also have a wide range of subscription packages to fit you or your company's needs. Follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Hello and welcome to Energy Enablers, the podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy, which talks to those making a difference every day in the energy transition. I'm your host, David Weston, Editor-in-Chief at Foresight. And in this episode, we have something a little bit different. I'm joined by two guests to talk about energy infrastructure. Firstly, Thomas Bormans is the head of Foresight at German energy company Eon. And with him is Helga Barlin, Senior Principal at AFRI Management Consulting. Earlier this year, E.ON and AFRI authored a report about how to tackle the tricky yet vital problem of infrastructure build-out to support the energy transition. In this conversation, we discuss why the issue has reached where it is today, a bottleneck to decarbonisation, and the best next steps. I hope you enjoy our chat. Thomas and Helga, thank you so much for joining us on Energy Enablers. Thomas, maybe we could briefly begin with you. Um, Your report that Eon and uh, Afri have uh, authored together uses the metaphor of the Gordian knot and Alexander the Great's great act of slicing through the knot uh, in reference to Europe's energy transition and developing the infrastructure behind it. Can you elaborate on the inspiration behind that metaphor and what kind of you really mean uh, behind slicing the Gordian knot?
1: Yeah uh, sure and and thanks for being on the podcast and looking uh, forward to the to the chat between the three of us. Um yes on on the metaphor. I mean um if we think of the Gordian knot uh and there are some pictures we don't know whether it looked exactly like this but it seems like a knot with uh, no visible parts you could uh, start to entangle and probably if i think how people did it in this old story. They maybe fiddled around on some parts they could not really grab. And still, that was the logical way uh, to address the issue of a knot, if you want to untangle it. And uh, according to the story, a lot of people tried. And if they would succeed, they would win a lot of a big, um, big reigns, let's say, over a big country. And um, then, according to the story, Alexander came in, uh, looked at the knot, And then he did something different than all the others. He kind of, I imagine stepped back virtually and then cut the knot with his sword. And then it was open, it was uh, cleared and yeah, he he made it. And uh, certainly I'm not uh, promoting the the use of brutal force or so here, but the element of taking a step back, looking at the issue, thinking what could really effectively, um, in, a, in a quick way, get to an achievement you would like to see in the end. That is something which is a, a new approach, a different way to look at it, and stepping back and, and leaving the old trades. And that is what also motivated us in the study. Helga, the progress in developing Europe's
0: energy infrastructure towards a net zero, therefore, is, is quite slow. We need to take a step back uh as this metaphor suggests before we really tackle it
2: again what are the key challenges hindering this progress well that's that's actually quite a list and uh for for the sake of applicability i'd like to just subdivide them into groups the one one set is strategic challenges that uh, not even a country can do much about right there's first of all it starts with the complexity of the energy and industry system as such that we're trying to change and decarbonize here um, inside the system the diverging interests of countries groups inside these countries sometimes across countries so there's very very different ideas of how to change the system if to change it at all um, the different starting points per country the different Perceptions and senses of urgency, the different financial means, different readinesses to pay for whatever's needed to bring that change about. Financial markets challenges, recent situation with interest rates, just to name a few. And then there's the geostrategic challenges that kind of span from containing and hopefully mitigating the the current wars, right down to setting a scene or setting a frame where all the uh, the major powers. Uh, in the world that are actual shapers or larger scale shapers of the energy and industry system find a way to um, to uh, settle their conflicts or else work around them in the common interest of decarbonization. That's the, that's the strategic challenges. And it's not something that a single person, single company, single economy can do much about. But then there's the functional ones. And that's actually what we focused on in this study here. And I'd just like to pick out a, the five key ones that we've been looking at here. The first thing is like when when European countries started decarbonization efforts, they typically focused on short-term measures and on subsystem optimization. So there were some some countries took targets in terms of renewables. Some uh, countries took uh, took measures in terms of efficiency or sometimes even grid expansion. But uh, most of them were largely unconnected, unorchestrated. So they were on the micro level and on the macro level. And also... Uh, That's kind of reflected in nationally focused targets. So it's only recently that the European countries have come together in uh, different accords and different activities and uh, and kind of clubs, if you will, um, in order to facilitate the interplay between molecules, electrons, energy savings, uh, energy system management across borders in a way that is fundamentally different from what has been done in the past. And the third one is, especially in uh, in countries like Germany, a big hope was that private households, private uh, people would actually become what was called prosumers. So they, mm-hmm. they would become energy professionals. They would actually take a completely different stance in their energy utilization, becoming producers of their own electricity by way of their own solar panels, managing their uh, electricity, and basically taking an interest in their, Energy utilisation that go that kind of almost takes the form of an engineering interest of an optimization interest, which is kind of um, outside the normal set of interests um, of households and and uh, and people in general. Um, then there is the uh, flexibility that is uh, that has always been put forward as a big lever. Um, in uh, in managing intermittent renewables that in reality hits a uh, uh, whole multitude of obstacles when it comes to real day uh, implementation. And last but not least, um, there was a lot of optimism that almost everybody would just accept measures of deco- for decarbonization just as they come along and that was actually uh, facing, increasing resistance whether it's uh, putting up a wind park uh, near a settlement uh, or else establishing an industry uh, cluster that is supposed to um, to produce um, assets and uh, um, and technology for the system changes there's a whole lot of um, of challenges that have to be seen as a bucket as a basket rather than trying to, t- to tackle one challenge that also goes back to the Gordian not hmm. um picture it's not a single thing it's an entanglement of many different issues that requires a strong slicing move um, to get ahead rather than trying to optimize by pulling at the different threads
0: we all know everyone listening to this podcast understands the importance of keeping global warming to or as close to 1.5 degrees celsius as possible how does this urgency shape the recommendations in your study thomas
1: Yeah, I would say, um, of course, in in the course of the study, we looked at different options, uh, what could be done, how it could be done. And um, I remember that I was uh, also in in Brussels at that time once, uh, and I asked some of my Brussels contacts from the old times there, or described a few um, possibilities we see. And the uh, reaction from quite some experienced uh, person there was, Ah, that would be cool, but oh man, this this will get difficult. And this is something where I felt we're we're getting close to where we want to be with this study. Because I think the urgency um to, to fight climate change and, and to to change the system, uh this leads to quite some things we actually have to change. I mean, there should not be the notion, you know, that there's a little Bold or a little screw, we can uh, change a bit and and then we will be all fine. There will be stuff that we really need to see different. And if we wouldn't have this urgency that really things need to change, we wouldn't need to look at stuff which is really changing the approach from the old approach maybe to a new one. But uh, the urgency uh, means that we have to do that. So we are um, aware that these things are yeah, are not easy to implement. Um, but we think it actually could be a smart approach and is up for discussion. And that's actually how we wanted to translate this this urgency into yeah, suitable actions.
2: No, I can only underline that, Thomas, if I may. So I think when, one good way to to phrase it is productive urgency right but because we're looking at a huge challenge here that humanity has not ever been faced with before so maybe just to give some context here right so we're we're looking at typical decarbonization paths that went net zero around the middle of the century right that's about 25 years from today that's about one human generation or even less in Western European terms, and the targets on that way, 2030, EU targets, for example, it's like overall CO2 emissions less, uh, 55% less, um, renewable share of energy use uh, is anywhere between 42 and 45%, uh, electricity production almost 70%, and the financial needs are estimated about 2.5 trillion euros on an annual basis. Uh, In the last 10 years, uh, that figure was not even close to that. It was anywhere between 700 and 800 billion euros globally. So uh, the system itself requires a lot of change, fundamental change. But then also, if we look backwards, like um, in reflection of these 25 years, the current system has uh, evolved and developed over more than 100 years. And uh, when we say system, the complexity is huge. That's everything from basically mines for raw materials and fuels, power generation technology, grids, ships, vehicles, containers for transport, machines, and the technology that all the energy users use in their daily lives. And actually, last but not least, the uh, production companies um, and factories that make all these devices and that all of that needs to be either adapted or changed, and that's really huge. It's practical. It's not theoretical. It goes way beyond models. Concerns every aspect of human life. So when we when we say productive urgency, uh, that also reflects some uh, some humbleness, some modesty in the face of that challenge. Right. So we are of, by no way uh, by no means of the opinion that just by doing everything. Practically right, 1.5 degrees is guaranteed. Far from that, right? Because if we look at how far we've come with the change today, decarbonization efforts in Europe started about in the early 2000s, right? They've been running for about 20 years already. And other parts of the world started even later. And it's only very recently only, right, that renewables really started to scale and to enter the phase of fundamental structural change. So, where intermittent renewables cannot just simply be balanced by existing fossils, but they require dedicated rest storage. They require flexibility potentials. They all need to be integrated into the system. So, the challenge is extremely complex and the time left compared to how much time it has taken to build this system This effectively this largest machine on the planet is very, very small, right? And that's why we focused the study on what can be done to simplify and maximize the impact of the carbonization efforts in Europe. And that's actually the reason we have looked at, but most principles hold for other regions as well. And we were humble in our aspirations. The Propositions aim at maximizing the bang for the buck, right? The impact of efforts and money involved here to make it Practically easier, more effective, less expensive to get closer, as close as possible to the net zero target. So they do not guarantee 1.5 degrees in a modeling level, far from that. Uh, They intend to facilitate the way towards that goal in the real world. That was the shaping principle to find acceleration levers that will very likely work in practice in a complex system context. And that can be implemented in comparatively simple ways. Um, one of those recommendations, um, in line with many other reports,
0: uh, calls for the tripling of investment in renewable energy supply and capacity. What are the main obstacles, both political and financial, that hinder this investment and how can they be addressed?
1: Yeah, uh, maybe. I mean, we, we discussed already I mean, the, the reasons why things are not going that fast. And um, I think probably later we will also talk about the principles that we lined out in the study the old design principles where we come from and then new we, we get to. Uh, but before we do that, um, at this moment, I think it's important to highlight the the very crucial thing which is behind, in my view. And that is actually that we have a s- systems or logics um, that we developed in the early phase of the transition. And in the early phase, it was about incrementally, uh, you know, step by step, bringing the new system, so the renewables, the efficiency, and so on, in, and the um, distrib- more distributed sources into the old system, the fossil and centralized. And at that time, um, that was very meaningful yeah, because uh, you have a system. It's absolutely crucial for everyday life. You want to change it. So what is it? What do you do? You start with small steps introducing change in the system. And that is all fine, let's say, at that moment. Um, but then at a certain moment, if things are scaling, uh, the production uh, of, of uh, systems, of renewable systems, the, the price is falling. I mean, a lot of things uh, could actually now deliver scale. But our thinking the policies, the, the financials around it is more geared to smaller steps, smaller volumes, uh, smaller amounts of investments. And that is something that we need to leave behind. And the recommendations, um, uh, uh, obstacles and recommendations we will come to in these principles, they often relate to this, um, I would call it think big um, in different dimensions, but often it is think big instead of incremental. And I think the the moment that we are in the transition not only allows for this thinking big, but actually requires that.
0: When you say think big, can you give some sort of, context to that how big are we talking are we talking um, inflation reduction act big are we talking um, net zero industrial act big what kind of scale are we oh do we need to reach
1: um, maybe two two examples let's say um, linking also to the, the principles then I mean uh, currently we have a lot of the targets being rather uh, on a national level. And uh, of course, this makes sense because we, uh, the governance in the EU, is geared in that way that the member states have uh, quite some freedom how to do their things. Uh, but if you, for example, would design the the system, the renewable energy system or low uh, zero carbon system of the future from scratch, if there was would be none then you would probably really look at Europe as a whole. And you would say, well, in the south, I can produce um, a lot of solar electricity. In the north, there's a lot of potential for wind. Uh, There are regions in Europe which have an incredible demand um, of energy. Uh, That's for example, southern part of, of Germany or northern part of Italy and so on. But if you would look at a map of Europe where the potentials are for renewables, and where the main uses are, it's not always fitting one-to-one. And so if you would design it anew, you would probably look where are the big inputs to the system, where could you have these, where are maybe countries that specifically could have the task to transport electricity or um, other energy forms from one end to the other to make it usable elsewhere. And this is thinking big in a context of more European than national. Um, but also what Helga already mentioned with the focus of projects. Um, now we're thinking a lot of um, energy or people being prosumers. Um, and that has a very, um, very reasonable background because years ago, let's say when we wanted to start the energy transition at a certain moment, policy makers were disappointed because big companies actually like, like ours as well at that time were not necessarily at the forefront of doing renewables projects. And policy then said, well, uh, maybe the big players don't want, and we also want more buy-in from people on the energy transition. So why do we not allow people themselves to invest in like a PV system on your roof? And I would say there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. The problem is that over time, I think the thinking was that we... We're relying too heavily that all the people you know on the individual, home, individual homes would do that. And the difficulty is that it, it leads a lot of decisions by many people to do so. And also each system uh, needs an inverter, it needs insulation, it needs people who install it. and of course, it makes a difference whether you install like 10 kilowatt peak would be a, already a quite nice system for an individual roof or 10 megawatt, which would be a bigger, you know, uh, PV system along the highways or so. And I think the point is a bit that maybe introducing this possibility and invest yourself too much of the thinking was that all of this would be done in small projects. And now we recognize that this is a good thing to happen. But if we place all the responsibility there and maybe hamper bigger projects, then at a certain moment, we might not be speedy enough, but thinking big would mean still, of course, promote the use of these uh, systems at, at building level and individual level, but also make possi- uh, possibilities and room and, um, and setups for really big projects that really can make also big big step jumps in, in, in the production.
0: Hi everyone, me again. Please do rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. It really helps us out, means we can make more shows like this and means more people can find us. Also, a quick reminder to subscribe to Foresight Climate and Energy so you don't miss out on any of our other podcasts or long-form journalism. Head to the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe. Obviously, if we scale up, those sort of projects uh, and the, the, that capacity we're going to run into even more of the delays and uncertain investment frameworks and shortages of labor and materials that we're already seeing today. That's They're going to be you know, exacerbated. Uh, Helga, how can we kind of mitigate some of these challenges uh, to to accelerate the energy transition.
2: Yeah, thanks, thanks for saying mitigating rather than solving, because again, uh, just, just like the complexity of the system, the, uh, these questions have a complexity all of their own. I'll start with bureaucracy, because that's kind of like a, a pet of every uh, political discussion, if you will. Everybody wants to slash bureaucracy, but then when it comes to really doing it, um, the uh, the activities become surprisingly low key. So, b- b- bureaucracy mitigation can come in very different forms. One can, for example, one can professionalize the fulfillment of existing regulations. It sounds quite simple or quite quite uh, quite banal, but in the end, fulfilling the regulations that are currently required to to get subsidies, for example, on the European level, or to present an IPSE project, um, require whole departments of very experienced people to prepare, right? And uh, they are individual, they are sometimes very differentiated, very specific. So there's a lot of effort needed, a lot of, uh, a lot of diligence needed. And uh, in order to make that easier, um, there, um, there can be specialists based on the, um, on the national side that help do this, that, uh, that help um, companies to do that. But then there's also the other side, and that's also what this, this study actually points out to simplify these regulations. Um, And the latter can actually be very powerful if uh, the European regulators and the governments find, I would dare say, the courage to be less precise in detail and more ready to kind of accept some friction and loss of effort on the sides as the price of unleashing company interest and market forces. Because as, as far as we perceive it, current European regulation, although it is showing some tendencies to change, it's still mainly about avoiding mistakes about forcing marketplace to act and a little less about enabling opportunities and getting marketplace interested to do that. And that's not to say that the change will work without any regulatory forcings, right? Making energy green costs more than make it, uh, making it gray. But the main interest must be to unleash forces rather than reining them in, right? And there's... Several examples of doing things differently, the IRA, you've mentioned it before, is one way to do things differently just one example. Um, and the, you, you mentioned labor shortages, right? They will likely require a fundamental look at how professional education and acceptance of qualifications of migrants works today because the current situation is that ever more young people go for university studies instead for craftsmanships, um, which is not bad as such, but what it does, it kind of dries out the construction force base for all the new facilities that are needed. Um, min studies could use more interest than they get today. Both applies not only, but especially to women, right? So there's mm-hmm. a lot of camps that or, or fields that can actually be and, and need to be changed there. And, the, and then it comes to the materials question that you've been mentioning, and that's actually a biggie, right? It's, uh, it's uh, If you do the math, the transition of the global energy and industry system with the current technologies needs a lot more of many raw materials than produced today on an Mm. annual basis. And if we look at the target picture at the net zero energy and industry system as per current technologies, what it does is it requires structurally more raw materials than are known today in terms of resource deposits and recycling opportunities. So that's not to say that the transition can't work as such. Mm. It's to say that in order to make it work, we need a combination, right? Uh, New resource deposits need to be opened very fast, especially mines, Mm. uh, requiring framework to back that up to accelerate the current transition phase, and then a joint global effort, of course, to develop additional new technology that uses less or other materials. And if you combine all these and back them up with credible regulatory stability, it's quite likely uh, that market players will pick up the ball and run with it uh, without right. sophisticated micromanagement on the EU or national level. Interesting,
0: uh, Thomas, you touched on it a little bit earlier, the design principles that have – Brought the system to where it is today, but there are f- the report identifies five of these principles that are now hindering progress towards a, a net zero economy. Can you briefly describe some of these principles and why they are impeding rapid advancement?
1: Yeah, it, it's it's basically um, touching um, as we discussed along the energy transition, uh, why it is hampered and and what would be possibilities. And uh, the five principles actually um, came from this discussion. Actually, we were sitting um, in, in a room together in the project team, also with um, other teams within, within our company and, and Helga's team. And we were looking at, um, let's say, how we could actually go about this. And we uh, also looked at it uh, like we sometimes look at, uh, at foresight projects. Because in foresight projects... Uh, when we try to anticipate what's what's happening, that's one of our core jobs here um, in, in group strategy. We're trying to understand where stuff comes from, uh, why it has developed as it did, who d- is driving water, who, who did what. And also, let's say, then thinking, is it the same people who will move that forward? Will it be the same principles, let's say, that people will apply? And that is how uh, we um, yeah can... Anticipate a bit better what might be up in the future. So really understanding the past and the present, and and how to how this might move forward. And actually, we applied these logics um, to the question how we could accelerate, let's say. And it was also a bit a test how how to do that and where it would bring us. And actually, in the discussions, we were able to carve out such let's say old principles. A lot, of course, it's a lot of developments, but you can distribute them to five main items, let's say. And uh, quickly referencing on, on these, and of course, people can are welcome to dive in the report and, and look what is behind. But uh, one is the mentioned focus on this short uh, subsystem optimization. So all the time, let's say the intention was to do a little bit and make sure that this is being as effective as it can be, let's say. And for example, if you think of, of grid infrastructures. Um, also today, the uh, always you need to somehow prove that the the additions you do to the gr- uh, you do to the grid are cost effective and and meaningful, and that is very very good because it's regulated business. I mean, people pay this via their energy bills in a, in, in amounts. And if the legislator would let every grid company just build what they would like to do, and it all ends up on the bill of people, um, the, it could be just too expensive. So there was then the um, it was implemented that you would need to be very targeted and very effective. Now, this was all good for some time. But now we need to work towards a target picture, because basically 2040 or 50, we need to be where we want to be. But um, typically, um, large infrastructure is around for 20, 30 years. That means basically, we need to build today or tomorrow, the latest, what we want to see in 2050. And there you see that it's kind of not possible anymore to go for incremental steps, but you need to more or less anticipate what you would need. Do we need, I don't know, more um, capacity for uh, transporting electricity because we want to have charging of mobility over there. We maybe want to have uh, electrolyzers running. Maybe we want to uh, have other um, uh, strong needs of, for electricity or so, then basically we need to build an advance already bigger. And that is not, uh, let's say, this focus on this short term uh, optimization was very meaningful, but now it's, it starts to hamper us. And maybe then uh, I mentioned the nationally focused targets. That is something, let, let's say, that contains action a bit more on the member state level and, and loses synergy. Number three is this private prosumer logics, as mentioned, very meaningful. We should not stop that, let's say, but it should be complemented by really bigger, big projects, let's say, that can add to it. Uh, number four was then also looking at this flexibility solutions, which so far, I mean, it's was all the time acknowledged that we would need that someday, more flexibility because the input gets more more flexible to the system. We need to accommodate for that. But it always wasn't that important because the input of renewables was still smallish. But now we are at a moment where we desperately need to change this and have clear targets and clear mechanisms and market mechanisms how to get that in. And finally, the last point, um, the objections and and negative um, impacts of a a project Uh, For example, if you want to put a wind park somewhere, um, this was um, something which was valued very high. And that is a good thing. We are living in in democracies. That's very good. You cannot just do something. But let's say uh, in many cases, people, let's say, objected to something and then the project was over. And that was okay at this time. But now that we need to get fast um, in bigger leaps, we need to find creative ways around that. And these are the the five basic, let's say, old principles, uh, how the system was started or the change was started. And and they're really hampering us um, as we stand now. Mm. And Helga, on the flip side of that, what then can we do? What
0: are the new principles uh, that can help untangle the knot uh, and expedite the energy
2: transition? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Maybe I'll just roll this all into one, right? Because uh, Thomas just presented the details of the of the five leaves that we have identified and everybody's of course welcome to read up on them in the study but maybe in, in order to put an umbrella over this this is about thinking big right and the uh, and a lot of the current approaches were about acting small and hoping for a swarm effect so everybody would get motivated everybody would kind of join the fray and then somehow automatically um, the entire net zero would come about as if by magic um, and then after everybody noticed that it's not working, there was a next step that had a lot of micro-level regulation in order to make things right. That didn't work either. Um, and uh, there's a fundamental reason to that. Uh, and I mentioned that before. Making energy green is way more expensive than making energy gray. And the offset of that is less environmental damage. It's not something that is tangible in the wallets of people. And in order to make that come through, Either there is a, a society consensus that it's worth it to do that, or else the entire exercise will fail. If you don't go big right now, and I would uh, like to, to quote one example, which is the uh, the hydrogen grid that Germany has just been announcing that is, as we say, right-sized. Thomas has just mentioned that is oversized for the usage volumes of the first year, simply because it's already visible that there'll be a lot more transport capacity needed further down the line and in order to make these things happen there there are uh, bold moves are needed both from the governments as financers, as backers as guarantors and from the and from the companies and this needs to be backed up by a fundamental readiness of the society to do this if that's not the case any activity in that field will necessarily be too little too late right? mm. so that kind of consensus uh, to bring about that consensus, to foster it, to motivate people to to join the consensus, that is, uh, that is the that is the largest and most important um, task around this entire exercise here. As far as we see, think big, think large scale, get things going, because mm-hmm. the uh, the small scale swarm effect uh, will not work most likely, and neither will the micromanagement approach that has been tried um in the, over the last years in some countries hmm.
0: does thinking big though uh, increase the risk of things like stranded assets of going down the wrong path uh, and, and pursuing something that actually absolutely. when it comes to 2050 we don't need absolutely,
2: absolutely. it does but there's a very, there's a very simple way to explain why this is still better if you do this you may fail if you don't do this you will fail.
0: Hmm. absolutely
2: would that argument work with the investors it would not, actually, if the uh, um, if the regulators as, as kind of like as agents of societies and governments and the societies themselves and the budget givers on the governmental level do not provide an interesting business case for the startup, right? So it's a combination, obviously, CO2 pricing is one point. Uh, we always come back to the point, making energy green is a cost for the current system, for the current society, it doesn't yield any immediate benefits. And that's a truth that is not widely discussed right? Uh, The three of us sitting around this call today, this podcast, will likely not have any tangible or very little tangible benefit from investing in green technologies today. Um, But it's actually for the generations that come after us. And and that consensus actually needs to be developed and fostered. And and that needs to be underneath everything. If that's not there, um, again, we come back to the too little too late, because then it's kind of limited to what national budgets have available at any given point.
1: Yeah. And and maybe to jump in on that. um, Also, let's say within the study, uh, one possible measure is, for example, state guarantees for things that are specifically, you know, a bet on the future or a certain development. Now, I would like to say that we're not um, sitting here and would say, yeah, we need a lot of money and all, let's say the guarantees from the state and then we move. I mean, we sh- will and we should always have a, uh, a certain risk as companies, as individuals. Yeah, we are believing in something. We want to do it. This is a business risk. This must not be, you know, taken away. But for example, if um, you, you plan w- we, like the, the hydrogen grid that, uh, that Helge mentioned, uh, these things are really big investments, let's say. And it could happen that, you know, out of political decisions or, or market developments, uh, something will completely not develop over time, which you yeah, uh, anticipated and planned for. And I think in these cases where it's really um, a bet of society that this will go this way, it's also fine to help possible investors with at least taking some of the b- bigger risks um, in in form of guarantees. And by the way, that is not a completely new invention. I mean, there are guarantees, for example, from the state to uh, do trade with some some other countries globally where maybe you have some uh, risks of uh, geopolitical risk or other things, but you nevertheless would want to have this trade relation. Mm. And um, in these cases, I think it's fair. As said, it's not something you can just ask for everything. We, we, there should always be a good, uh, let's say, business reason and um, being reasonably sure that this will work. Uh, but you see that some in some actors, for example, in, in, in the electric mobility field, it's a lot like this. Uh, mm. A lot of actors, including ourselves put charging, uh, in, in somewhere near the highways and of course, hope that over time, more people will come for charging, but they're very big, uh, infrastructure developments. If we think of European grids and so on, that is where, um, it's really a big, big amounts, and then some of the risks might also be well borne with with mm-hmm. the state. Uh, we're coming to the end of our time together. Just briefly, the study provides actionable
0: policy recommendations for regulators and, and I guess, governments as well. Could you possibly pick maybe one or two each of you uh, that you would really recommend these regulators take on board and action as soon as possible, Helga?
2: Yeah, maybe, maybe just start briefly with with uh, what a regulator is probably not, um, as far as we're concerned. So, a regulator is not in a position to prevent commercial mistakes, and they do not know how the many different technologies in the intended Net Zero system will evolve and play out in the end. So, they should not implement path preferences for specific technologies, and there are regulation, their product, if you will, should be focused on the macro level, the overall objective of decarbonization to maintain a functional energy and industry system. And that entails enabling choices and interplays between technologies and regions rather than effectively prescribing what market players should do or not do by, for example, by way of very specific subsidies. So um, regulators, if regulators can become enablers and wardens of the change rather than Drivers and owners, um, that would probably be one contribution that is quite substantial.
1: Brilliant, uh, and Thomas. Yeah, and and maybe to uh, one, one item um, around policy making, which I find very important, um, that comes to this. Let's say the constructiveness um, that uh, we think is necessary, uh, opposed to let's say um, objections um, uh, hampering hampering progress. Uh, I remember a discussion that we had uh, actually already uh, a few years ago It was was on smart cities and, and renewable energy in cities. And then uh, the discussion was like, okay, we need a lot of energy in the city, but there's not much space. So maybe we should have um, rural areas around the city supply that. And everybody was like, ah, oh, yeah, sounds cool. And then one person was, was raising her hand and says, uh, well, but what makes us so sure that the rural areas around the city want that and I found that a very cool question and actually there are ways i mean at at that specific meeting, then the discussion was ah okay that's that's right maybe I mean maybe we could improve public transport into the city uh, as a you know way to to honor that um the um the renewable systems are placed there um Also, um, and for example, in the study, some examples are that you could, as a region or rural region, get kind of credits uh, for these renewable systems uh, that gives you, for example, better access to structural funds that you need, I don't know, for building schools or so. So it's not about, you know, bribing everybody who, who would like to say no, but also not, you know giving up too easy because if you think about it there's actually some things and trade-offs you can do you can jointly invest you can give other incentives and the study gives some some ideas around that what policymakers could do and i'm i'm sure there's a vast amount of other things that could be done absolutely guys thank you so much for joining me on the energy
0: Enablers. one question i ask all of our guests on this podcast um it's a very big question i i completely agree but um we ask it anyway will the energy transition
2: succeed helga That depends uh, how you define success. I'm I'm a big fan of definitions and success is anything that helps us get away from the business as usual scenario from uh, overly critical temperature increases. And I'm pretty sure that this can work.
1: And I think, let's say um, it's a a tough match. Let's say it will be by no means easy, but actually um, I get... Well, kind of optimistic, uh, by the way, that I fear that the pressure will just increase so immensely, let's say, from climate change, from uh, could be geopolitical reasons that require change even faster. And I very much believe in the ability of mankind um, to yeah, really change gears if it's really necessary. So that's not, not a really cool message in a way that everything will be shiny and green, But I think we've seen many times, and it's even in our personal lives, I mean, we all know if something's really important, really, and you know it, you can be so much faster. And that gives me confidence that we can. Absolutely. Thomas and Helga, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Really great conversation. Thank you. Thanks so much.
0: My thanks to Thomas and Helga for joining me on Energy Enablers. What a fantastic conversation about unlocking essential infrastructure to make the transition a reality. I liked Helga's point about the urgency of the situation and placing investments where you get the most bang for your buck. We'll be back again soon with another episode of Energy Enablers. In the meantime, do check out the rest of our energy transition content over on foresightdk.com, including our latest special print issue on e-fuels and other alternative energy carriers. Thanks for listening.